Our brand new podcast is here. In Under the Hood, we lift the lid on the banking infrastructure that's shaking up the financial services industry. In partnership with Synapse, we'll explore a different area of banking tech every Thursday and talk to experts around the world. Head to your favorite podcast app and follow Under the Hood to catch the latest episode. From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News. Today, we bring you huge funding rounds as Stripe are now worth $95 billion. BlockFi raises $350 million and Tencent loses $62 billion. Lots of money in this show, isn't there? And Australia's Combank tries to play buy now, pay later players at their own game. All this and much, much more on today's show. Welcome to episode 512 of Fintech Insider. My name is David Breer, and today I'm joined by my 11FS colleague and co-host for today, Mel Stringer, Lead Product Manager over at 11FS. How's it going, Mel? Very well, thank you. Yeah, I'm I'm having a really good day. We've had some really interesting client conversations today, so I'm sort of exhilarated and slightly hyper. I've got to be real with you. Well, I want to know what that is. Like, uh, I feel I feel like going over to Slack and just finding out what's happening right now. But uh, yeah, it's exciting times all around, which is uh, which is good. But we'll contain the excitement for no doubt a fun announcement later on down the line. Hey, uh, as always, we're not alone. We are joined, albeit as always at this stage, remotely by some super duper awesome guests. Making a welcome return to FinTech Insider, we have Oscar Williams Groot, who is the senior city correspondent at Yahoo Finance. How's it going, Oscar? Very good. Good to be back. Uh, unfortunately, I don't have any uh, exciting stories to share from the day so far. I think the highlight of my day is going to be this podcast and then the pie I've got for dinner. <laughs> what type of pie is it? Because, like, you better not be hitting me with some of that chicken and mushroom, honestly. Like, there better be a steak and kidney, else I'm not even having it. I have to say, I don't know. My girlfriend's been in charge of it, so it's, I've seen it sitting in the fridge, and it's a homemade pie. Wow. So it's going to be a surprise. That That's why it's going to be a highlight. Yeah, that yeah. is exciting. I mean, homemade pies, I'm impressed with that. Like, if, if nothing has come out of lockdown, it's, it's uh, like, baking and all different types of stuff. Because, like, I'd have gone Glinsters, like, no lie. Like, so it's, uh, <laughs> you've uh, you've really out, uh, outshone me a on Greg that one. slice. I forget what we were talking about, but probably I should move on at this point. Uh, making his FinTech Insider debut, we also have Miguel Amaza, who is the co-president and podcast host over at Wharton FinTech. How's it going, Miguel? Thank you for joining us on the show. Thank you for inviting me, David, and good to see you again. Yeah, great to see you. Um, before we get into it, do you want to tell everybody a little bit more about Wharton FinTech? Absolutely, absolutely. So Wharton FinTech is associated with... The Wharton School, of course, and it's uh, it's actually at its core, it's a student club, right? It's a student club comprised of grad level students, which means that most of our members have, you know, I'd say a minimum of three years of experience, sometimes close to a decade, and very often they come from big fintech companies, right? So it's this uh, it's this mix of super interesting people, and we have, I'd say, two aspects. One is events and these are weekly normally they will be on campus now they've been remote but these are events where we're hosting some of the most interesting people in fintech uh, and on the other side we have the media front right and then there we have uh, a blog as well as a podcast super proud of our podcast is definitely our, our jewel it's been going on since 2015 250 episodes in uh 
obviously you've been a guest, David, and we, we've published over the last 12 months four episodes a, a week. So it's been, it's been exciting. And one more thing I'll plug is our conference. So we have a, a conference coming up. It's uh, going to be, I'd say, one of the biggest fintech conferences of the year. So look out for that late April. Very cool. Well, uh, welcome to the show. Definitely, uh, you'll definitely have some decent views on uh, all the bits and bobs we're going to be talking about today. And there is lots and lots and lots to talk about, I'll be honest with you. It's been a pretty interesting uh, week as the valuations climb and climb and climb, don't they? For most people, not everybody, and we'll come to that in a second. Uh, first up, we have a story that was over on Finextra. It is Stripe raises $600 million at a $95 billion valuation. That is a whole heap of money. The valuation is more than two and a half times what it was valued at this time last year. Uh, the company says it will use this capital to invest in its European operations, particularly in its Dublin HQ and expand out its global payments and treasury network as well. Enterprise revenue is now both Stripe's largest uh, and its fastest growing segment that it's actually servicing, more than doubling year over year. Stripe currently counts more than 50 companies that in themselves each process over 1 billion annually. Just take a moment to like let that settle in. Like that is a lot of money that they are kind of moving around in the planet. So uh, using this new funding strike plans to double down on its enterprise capability. Yeah, they do because it's doing really well. Uh, and also allowing them then to connect into ERP systems, expanding into millions of more businesses uh, and aiming at geographical expansion as well with Brazil, India, Indonesia, Thailand and the UAE. Uh, Oscar, this is something that you wrote about. Do you want to kick us off with uh, other than that's a whole lot of money? Um, <laughs> then uh, what are you thinking about this? Well, I think it's interesting. I mean, uh, looking at the headline number of the valuation, it's easy to be sort of blown away by just how big it is. Obviously, you know, 95 billion is a lot of money. And to see it surge so much over just, uh, you know, the last 12 months or so is pretty pretty incredible but i think if you put it in context of the broader market it it, it does make sense remember back in january we saw checkout.com arrival also triple their valuation you know from a from a smaller uh, base but it's the same uplift that we've seen here in the uk official statistics show uh, the number of online sales has jumped from something like a fifth of all transactions to a third um during the pandemic. And if you look at the graph, it's pretty striking. It kind of gradually is inching, inching up, and then suddenly a step change when the pandemic uh, hits. Now, of course, I'm sure we'll see a bit of a tailing off when things start to ease off. But a lot of people think, you know, this is, uh, the, it, it's not never going back to where it was before. This is really is a step change that's going to kickstart a lot of these things. Uh, I mean, I, I follow many, many businesses that I used to frequent in person pr prior to the pandemic on things like Facebook and Instagram. So many of them set up shops uh, using things like Stripe or Rivals and are now serving their clients digitally. Uh, I'm sure we'll go to a blended method before, you know, shops that I used to only visit in person are going to do a bit of both. And that sort of speaks to Stripe's core business model, at least. Uh, and of course, as you sort of pointed out there in your introduction, a big uh, reveal almost in this announcement is the, the size of its enterprise business. Stripe's traditionally associated mainly with the smaller players that it allows, 
you know, mum and pop shops to get online and start serving clients. But now actually they say, hey, look, we've got a lot of big businesses using us to move a lot of money around the world. And that's got to be attractive. Mm. It's interesting. I mean, Stripe Stripe is sort of like the uh, the perfect story in, in all of this, isn't it? Because it's just annoying how nice they are. Do you know what I mean? Like Patrick Collinson is such a nice guy, but they're also doing so well. Like it's just and it's just annoying. Like and and the I guess that everybody's sort of waiting for the IPO as well, right? I was getting all excited about Deliveroo's IPO uh, last week, but when Stripe IPOs, like that's going to be one of the biggest IPOs that we've really ever seen. In and it, and it's almost like the the industry is getting to a really interesting point in terms of valuations but you know importance i mean mel we you know we talk a lot about the you know fabric of financial services like stripe is part of that fabric well and truly now and and clearly a a really big one right yeah absolutely um i i find stripe just generally really really intriguing i'd love to sort of know all the decision makers a little bit better and be able to ask them all of my questions because i've got so many questions for them like you, you talk about niceness and I can kind of see that as well in their strategy. So, for example, they're moving more into the sort of enterprise model and away from the smaller uh, mum and pop shop um, type model that Oscar was talking about. And that's kind of, um, you know, reminiscent of the uh, competitors that are coming into the market to deal with those smaller companies. And then when we think about their pricing model as well, their um, attitude has always been to be really kind of transparent and really open about the scalability of the pricing and so on. But actually, um, the way that it levels up means that they're um, now a lot more competitive and better suited to these massive, larger enterprises and all of the different layers of their operations as well. So like forward and risk management and um, the reporting and data analytics and all of that sort of stuff that actually is germane to a larger organization. One thing that I did think was really intriguing was um, the comment around their growth opportunities. So they mentioned like Brazil um, in one of their press releases. And um, it kind of makes me wonder about the uh, the impact of, of things like the um, instant payment system that's um, in the works in Brazil and how that will sort of affect the landscape of financial services for these larger players and to the degree to which it might cannibalize some of that opportunity. Um, but then because there's so many different layers to the uh, the enterprise strategy and the, the services that they can offer, then um, maybe they'll find a way to be relevant and competitive in every single market on the planet. And certainly in Europe, they seem to be the dominating force. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see it as it scales. Like, say, if you for everything you, you said there in terms of starting with smallest companies and scaling and scaling, can they scale to be a you know fully global system in the way that they've set their business up? But uh, um, Miguel, what, what do you think? Uh, have you, you got any dirt on the Collinson brothers? Because like, uh, it made me feel good about life right now. But uh, if not, then what do you think about Stripe? Uh, well, first of all, I, I did live in Ireland for, for a year, so I'm a big fan. And, and so to see Irish people doing well, that's, that's even better. You know, I wanted to go back to one of the data points that you mentioned, and that's the fact that they're processing over a billion dollar annually for over 50 companies, right? And while that sounds big, you know, I, I used to work for Citigroup in, in a previous life, and their 
department, uh, Treasury and Trade Solutions, is processing $4 trillion a day of client flow, right? So Stripe, I mean, just has so much room for growth that, you know, to me, I mean, there's, there's no doubt this is going to be one of the most powerful companies in the planet as long as they continue executing. And there's no reason why they wouldn't. Yeah, that's super interesting. Yeah, definitely around like the upward momentum. And they certainly seem to be really bullish about their potential. And it kind of makes me wonder if the IPO will kind of be inevitably delayed like forever because there's so much investor interest. Like, why would they? Yeah, I mean, if you're, if you're making money in the way that you need to. But um, and again, uh, 600 million, like that is a huge number. Like actually having a plan that is that big I mean, it's going to be it's going to be fascinating to see what happens with this one. I, I actually reached out to Patrick. Uh, we had the pleasure of having Patrick Collinson on the the podcast before, uh, back in what was it about eighteen months ago, two years ago now. Uh, reach out to Patrick and actually getting trying to get him and Mark Carney on because Mark Carney's obviously been appointed to their uh, to their board. Uh, I have promised Kate that she can be on at that episode because she's like deeply in love with Mark Carney. Uh, <laughs> sh- sh- shout out, Kate! I know you're listening. Um, but um, but we will be super super interesting to see if we can do that because again uh, the thing that I took from when we spoke with Patrick before is there's sort of no hidden um, process there's not some like Jedi mind trick these guys have figured out it is establish a business in the way that it should be listen to customers in terms of what they want make sure you build a great community around what you're doing rinse repeat scale uh, and it is that simple in terms of what they're doing and it's it's a thing of beauty, you know. Uh, Oscar, you got a point on that? Uh, well, I was just going to say, you know, we were talking about the fact that, uh, you know, they're, they're uh, rock stars in Ireland. It's great to see that they're also invested. Some of that 600 million is going to go towards scaling up in Dublin. You know, I'm sure Miguel will uh, second this, but they're absolute rock stars in Ireland. You know, the press love to talk about anything. If they breathe, they get a front page over there. <laughs> so it's fantastic to see, you know, the boys done good bringing some of the cash home and investing investing in Ireland. Very true, very true. And the Irish people, they're investing as well, right? The, the round was co-led by the, the Irish government. Well, the, the, the branch of, of the Irish government, their, their fund, right? Their sovereign fund, which is, which is great, right? Because it also ties back some of the upside mm. to the country itself. Yeah, and I think uh, I think as part of that, there was a guaranteed thousand jobs going to be created in Ireland because of this move, which is a uh, again a, a you know a, a great thing for uh, establishing more and more of a presence there, uh, not just for tax efficiencies perspective, but actually for for creating you know really a a bed of of great talent, which there there is you know. All right, we're gonna have to move on on this one. We could rave about how good they are, not just because we want to get them on the podcast, because they actually are. They're doing a great thing. All right, let's move on. Uh, from one funding story to another one, though. So this is BlockFi completes 350 million Series D funding round. Uh, cryptocurrency player BlockFi has hit $3 billion valuation off the back of a 350 million Series D funding round. Uh, founded in 2017, BlockFi is working to build a bridge between cryptocurrencies and traditional financial and wealth management products. The startup currently offers users the ability to earn yield on digital assets, buy and sell digital assets directly, 
and get US dollar loans secured by the value of digital assets on the platform. Uh, this is interesting. Uh, I mean, look, we get desensitized to, to large scales of money because like 350 million ain't much after you've talk, just raised 600 million. But dear God, this is a huge, huge amount of money again. And going into scaling and legitimizing further and further cryptocurrency players like this is um as we've sort of said a few times before it's like everything went quiet on the cryptocurrency phase for a while and it was because people were getting bigger and bigger and not having to talk about how big they are every 15 seconds right mel yeah absolutely and um i i think it's really interesting that um blockfi has chosen to service both both sides of the market so they've got um you know services for uh institutional facing sides but they also have this kind of retail angle um and i think it's really exciting actually that um you know you can earn sort of passive money or you can uh, increase liquidity without having to sell your assets because there are so many uh, like opportunities out there um, for um, cryptocurrency being the the asset itself that's transferred and you have to like buy and sell or people have talked about it being, you know, currency to, to buy stuff. But the idea that it can work alongside all of the fiat currencies and investments in, in the same way is hugely powerful. And I think that's probably why they've uh, they've managed to raise such a such an astonishing round. It's because it really kind of resonates with all of the um, the early retail investors as well. Mm. I mean, it's something that Simon's from Eleven FS has been saying for a while, right? Bitcoin's an asset class. It's it's not a uh, it's not really a currency. Yeah. The you know the uh, the 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 currency in cryptocurrency is a bit of a mislabeling. But um, what do you think, Miguel? As a, as an investor yourself, then uh, does is this increasingly? I mean, this space much more broadly than than just what BlockFi are doing. But is this space increasingly looking like a, a good investment? It definitely is looking like it. I, I've never invested in, in crypto myself, but I do recognize that clearly it's generating a lot of value. I mean, the numbers are there, right? They're, they've grown, I think, by a factor of 10x, 50 million monthly revenue, which is extremely impressive, right? I think, you know, we, we've had on, on the Wharton Fintech podcast particularly recently, uh, other than Simon, who joined us. Uh, we've also had founders of wealth tech companies uh, and on some of their leaders. We've had M1, we had Robinhood, um, Alto IRA, and all these companies, you know, they're starting with traditional equities and traditional wealth management. But slowly and surely, most of them are starting to expand as well and offer crypto investment uh, services, right? So there's the recognition that you have to offer everything, right? So in, in, in this case, I mean, I think uh, they're going to have to figure out something about the yield because their yields are definitely mm. quite high. Uh, I'm not sure how sustainable that, that can be over time. Right. And that is definitely a hook for a lot of people. But it's kind of showing that both worlds are colliding. You know, it's not going to be crypto alone that's going to take this this company you know, to the next level. It's uh, it's about all expanding beyond crypto and offering you know, wealth management services that go beyond it. Just a comment on the yield um, as well, their crypto holdings. They're currently offering 6% on Bitcoin and 8.6% on stable coins, which is massive, kind of undercuts like all of the traditional savings products, really. I mean, why wouldn't you? 
Yeah, I mean, it. Uh, I, I guess as those things become more and more legitimized, I actually think it's an interesting one because, because I mean, uh, my mum would never do this. You know, my mum would never use BlockFi. But, you know, Oscar, it didn't seem like too long ago every taxi driver in London was talking to you about, have you heard this thing called cryptocurrency, mate? <laughs> you know, like, so actually how many people are looking for, you know, legitimate options to store and benefit from cryptocurrency at this stage well it's interesting i mean i think at the moment it, the, the the big revival we be we're seeing at the moment in the market is being led by institutional investors rather than retail there was a a good bank of america note out this uh, this week essentially saying as much saying that you know it's it's people like tesla square paypal these types of people who are either announcing they're launching services or investing directly in it that's driving this sort of momentum um, but as you say, the last wave back in sort of 2017 was retail. And, and really, this sort of speaks to the strength of this business model in that, uh, you know, they're serving both sides of the market. So whichever ways the wind blows, they've got an offering that can uh, that can support them. Um, I mean, it's interesting as well. Just just earlier today, I got a release in my inbox saying um, that, you know, there's an, another company called Fireblocks, who I have to confess I hadn't heard of before, but they've raised... Uh, 113 million dollars today in a Series C, backed by you know Ribbit, uh, obviously a well-known venture capital fund, but also BNY Mellon, you know one of the oldest banks in America. They're putting some money into this company, um, and Fireblocks are a, a similar sort of company that they offer infrastructure for the sort of uh, the, the crypto space. So. You know, it's that it's like the old saying in in a gold rush, sell shovels. These sort of companies are going to do well because they're helping you speculate rather than speculating themselves uh, to a certain extent. So there's there's definitely momentum here, um, and and it also reminds me a few years ago when I went to Consensus. It was I think it was 2018, just as the, the it was the boom was moving into the bust, and I remember talking to people there, and they were saying, you know, this thing's going to come back because some of the smartest people are still interested in this sector and they're building. And that's what we're seeing coming to fruition now. That sort of two, three years of getting your head down, building things, that's now people are turning around and going, oh, wow, this is some fantastic things that I want to invest in now that the price is just going up and up. Well, there's a lot less Lamborghinis right now, <laughs> isn't there? So like, uh, all, all those guys... All those guys are, are driving uh, like Hondas now, and uh, you know, thinking differently about life. But, but I mean, the, your point on institutional side of things, like, is this you know DBS and BBVA? Is that those guys like backing this as the future, or is it doing what good investors do, which is spreading your portfolio? Like, and I, you know, they won't be betting everything into uh, you know cryptocurrencies as an asset class. They'll be they'll be speculating in this market to ensure that actually. They can take advantage of the the fluctuations rather than you know other people. Do. And, and I think almost like the we all sort of say it's like what's the best motivator? Is it gain or loss? And actually, I think many institutions get into these things on the fear that someone else is getting into these things, therefore they're losing out on opportunity rather than necessarily it being a you know uh, this is our strategic view of the world and where we're going. I'm not sure why that was my big bank voice, <laughs> but like you get the point, right? Um, but what, what do you think on that, Oscar? Do you think this is is a, I mean, are institutions just doing it as good spread risk? Uh, you know, this is spread betting in an institutional sense. I think it depends. I mean, you've got sort of two classes. You've got the 
institution in the sense of the more traditional financial services, the banks. And they are, I think, as you say, motivated by the sense that uh, if they don't do it, somebody else will. And then you've got the more sort of uh, perhaps uh, more ideological institutions, your Teslas, your Squares, MicroStrategy, people who are putting large sums into the actual sort of asset class. And in Tesla's case, and Square actually, talking about beginning to offer services to do this thing. And it's much more about a vision for how they see the future and sort of wanting to drive that vision forward, I think, rather than uh, the downside protection as as a lot of the more uh, traditional companies are going for. Hmm. Uh, Have you you guys... uh, I'm just interesting, like straw poll of like us four people who work in this industry. Who owns Bitcoin? I do. I do. Yeah. Yeah, I do. So that's three out of four people, like three (laughs) out of four people in the industry. But did you buy it because everybody else was buying it? Or did you buy it because you were like, look, this is the future. And you know, I bought it because Simon wouldn't stop going on about it. And I had to buy some just to stop him talking about it, basically. You know, what about you, Mel? I, 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 Yeah, for me, it was a a blend. I I bought it because um, a few people that I respect um, bought it. My mum bought some before I did, which I thought was really cool. Um, (laughs) And um, yeah, I I also bought some because I think it's it's good to support things that you believe in as well from a kind of uh, ideological viewpoint, I suppose, rather than necessarily knowing if it will 100% uh, be the right thing but i mean i bought gme as well so i bought a bunch of lloyd shares when i was working at lloyd's that didn't turn out too well either <laughs> and i believed in it but uh oscar well, how about you why did why did you buy bitcoin oh i bought it years ago just because it was going up and up and up and i thought listen if it keeps doing this i'm gonna look stupid if i don't and i promptly almost lost it all and now it's now it's come good more or less but you know if it's taught me anything it's just to leave it alone yeah, <laughs> it's true. Investments best bought and left for as long as you can, isn't it? So uh, and on that piece of advice slash this isn't financial <laughs> advice, please don't sue us. Then we're going to take a little bit of a break. <laughs> Back in a second. 11FS is supported by Banking Circle. Connect to the fastest, most cost efficient and transparent payment solution available in the market. All right, on with the second part of the show. So now we have a story over on TechCrunch, which is new challenger, whose name I'm definitely going to kill here, Ikigai. Ikigai? That's my best guess, everybody? That's right. Yeah. All right, we're going with that one. Uh, Combines digital banking and wealth management. So Ikigai is a new premium offering that combines digital banking with wealth management services. It consists of a current account and a savings account with adjacent wealth management features, all combined into a single app and card. The thesis of the product, says the founding team, is that currently there is very little on the market that actually provides a modern digital first experience uh, and the kind of premium banking services typically offered by legacy banks to their more affluent customers. Um, This is interesting, but is there not something in this space that sort of does this stuff? I mean, Nutmeg's been around for a while and you can get current accounts dead easy in the UK, right? Um, Jason always sort of says, uh, you know, the future is uh, 
here it's not evenly distributed and uh, you know actually the wealth service that we can provide in a digital era should be much 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 better than it is um but is this a is this a gap in the market or is i think i sort of feel like anything with a, a retail current account attached to it right now mel is is going to really struggle to kind of find a an opportunity to acquire customers what do you think i'm not sure i i quite like it i like the name um, I think it's very, very cool. I've got a notepad with Ikigai on it and it makes me feel a bit more like spiritual and at peace and generally like happy with myself. And wait, wait, you've got, you've got that because of the bank or you've got <laughs> no, that because no, no. of, because... I was going to say, is this a sponsor's message? Have they bought you with paperware? Just no, to... please, please do send me stationery though. I'm, I'm a big fan. I love stationery. Um, but no, it's a Japanese word meaning uh, a reason for being or purpose in life. And um, it's sort of, I guess, uh, well, there's a, there's a diagram that I'll, I'll draw later, but it's essentially like four circles and then the bit in the middle is supposed to be you and it's supposed to be like your purpose and happiness and spirituality and all of that. Um, so yeah, I quite like it. The name's very cool. And um, also Jason, Jason Bates um, called it banking like Rihanna. And I mean, love Rihanna, love Japan. So I mean, their marketing is on point from my, from my point of view. I also think though, in all seriousness, um, that, uh, yeah, I, I do agree. I, I think that um, the place of a wealth manager or an asset manager and um, the context in which they give advice and services to wealthy people, um, I think if we can democratize that for the everyday person, I think that would be hugely powerful. So things like, for example, um, do you, do you, does anybody know currently exactly what salary they could get from all of their investments when they retire and at what point you could retire? Because I don't, I've got no idea. I've got pensions all over the place and I do have investments, but I mean, I haven't done the math to figure out, can I retire at, you know, 40, 50, whatever. Um, so that sort of thing. And then also the impact on life moments, um, in your life. So should you move to a bigger house mathematically, what impact would that have? on your ability to retire, like all of those sorts of things that are actually um, huge and that have huge impact on people's lives. But we've got no ability to be able to synthesize those results without burying ourselves in a spreadsheet, which nobody yeah, does. It, it is it is interesting that, isn't it? And actually like wealth, uh, wealth management as a general thing has really struggled with the concept of digital, yeah. hasn't it? You know, and I, I know Mel, me and you've sort of talked about this a lot before, but like, you know, you go into Coots's office and you know it's Coots because there's koi carp and really expensive biscuits and marble <laughs> and stuff. So, but but sort of doing that in a, um, a digital environment is really, really difficult it because really you can't, hard, you can't yeah. replicate those things. Can you? And everybody does it in a stupid way. Like, yeah. I, like, pause this podcast now, go look up a website for a, a, a fancy private banking thing. I bet you they've got curly writing. <laughs> like that's how everybody does it. They pick a really obscure curly writing font and that's wealth in a digital context. And it and it's just not the same, you know? So how do you create a service in a digital world that is higher... Uh, returns for people because ultimately as you say Mel that's what people are wanting to buy I, I think there's an interesting conversation there about uh, subscription and we've talked a, a lot about subscription in the context of um, you know retail and obviously what Monzo have done and Revolut have done and different players but I do think it comes to it's like if you if you would get a service uh, you know sample size of one here Oscar 
if I could, and, and this is always sort of, um, you know, Jason's view, it's like the bank for Rihanna has like six people looking after Rihanna's money. So if I could give you like something that would look after your financial well-being, that would make sure your investments and the returns and everything that you're getting is optimized to, to exactly what you want, that's a service I think you would pay for, right? But is that this? I don't know. I mean... My view on this, I'm going to take a completely contrasting uh, uh, position on this. First of all, icky guy. It sounds like icky guy. <laughs> you know, uh, does nobody else? Nobody wants that? an icky guy. Yeah, like, yeah, I mean, like now he said that, Mel. Like I've gone well off it straight away. It. I know. I can't use it my reminds, notepad anymore. The, the explanation also reminds me of when the post office tried to change its name to Consignia. You know, all these branding experts came up with this fantastic explanation of you know it means this, it means that. Nobody chooses a bank based on, you know, the sort of complex meaning behind what the, you know, they'll hear it once and they'll go like, you know, Lloyd's, I've heard of that, whatever, Barclays, you know, it's meaningless, but, you know, fine. But that aside, I mean, I find it interesting really about this this uh, startup in that, you know, they say they're going after people in their sort of late 20s, early 30s who maybe aren't high net worth now, but sort of aspire to be which to me seems a bit of an odd market to go after because it's, how do you identify, well, first of all, surely that's the nutmeg market, people who have enough wealth that they want to sort of save, but they're not wealthy enough to really need sophisticated wealth management. Um, And as we've sort of covered, that's a very uh, competitive space. And then beyond that, if you're trying to differentiate yourself, I mean, this is anecdote rather than data, but when I look around, to my friends, the things that attract them to sort of products and services are either gimmicks or purpose. You know, people are either going for the Revolut metal cards, the Monzo metal cards, or they're going for, um, you know, green investment services, you know, uh, platforms that say, hey, we are we will only invest in green things about sustainable future because most people don't have huge amounts of money. So they want to either <laughs> make it look like they've got more with a flashy card or say, hey, I'm putting it towards something good. And, you know, I just sort of think in an era of ultra low interest rates, is a wealth manager that going to really make that much difference? I don't know. Hmm. I think I, I think me, it's, it's interesting because I think they might do in certain and, and almost I think I think the thing I think a wealth manager surface can benefit from uh, benefit people from is is almost not being asked to do your financial services stuff. Because like, that's where I'm at. I'm like, I do financial services stuff for a job. I don't want to do it at the weekend. Like you do that. You're the bank, you know. So actually, if if I could pay that fee, and and I'm I'm in the same situation Mel is. Like I got like I clearly was like not able to stick, you know, hold down a job for for too long. Like and I'm gonna <laughs> pretend like it was like I left them all. Some of them left me. Like it just happened. Um, but being in a situation where actually you've got all pensions everywhere and stuff, you've got no idea where where actually everything actually is, and you've got no idea where everything is. You've got no idea how well you're really doing. You've got no idea what you're gonna you know be able to retire on or where it is. And actually, this should be the thing that open finance and open banking can solve because if it could aggregate a lot of these these uh, worries together and give people an understanding of, um, you know, where you are and what you can do better. 
Um, it should. And I think that, you know, not just from an individualistic perspective, but actually just from a societal perspective, it's like we are facing into like an absolute shitstorm of pensions in like 15 yeah. years because people are going to really struggle to live on the thing that they haven't worried about forever because YOLO, you know. Um, um, but, you know, that's where I kind of really worry about it. I don't know whether this is that, though, and I can't get the name out of my head now. It's, it feels like... Uh, what was the episode of Friends where <laughs> Ross kept saying like Unagi? That's what I keep going back to, right? Yeah. That, that's what I keep going on my head. But uh, Miguel, like, what, what do you think? Is there a is there a place in the market for this type of subscription service? Do you think? I, I think there is a place. I'm not sure they are the ones to occupy that place. That remains to be seen, right? For me, what I love about the whole Wealthic <clears throat> trend is that it's been democratizing a service traditionally reserved for the wealthy or you know the, the ultra rich. So anything that is bringing it back to the people, uh, I'm all for it, right? But I I know for example, uh, a successful company like Wealthfront, right? They initially they started targeting kind of this this middle, right? The, the not super wealthy but also um, you know, not at, at uh, you know, at the bottom and they backed out, you know, out of it. So they, they, they figured out that it was better to, to just target a, a, a more ample, a, a bigger size market. So we'll see. I mean, just like any other company, I mean, we all know that the iPhone wasn't the first smartphone, but they out, out executed everyone and they just brought an amazing product. If these guys can, can really deliver an amazing experience, then you know they they they're also catching a wave that's that's growing. So they, you know, they might be able to pull it off. I think it's also about um, timing as well in in somebody's life and where they're actually targeting. So they're they're looking for individuals that are future high net worth individuals. They'll be in their sort of twenties or early thirties, which I think is a really interesting demographic, and that. I believe that those people would be willing to pay a subscription for more certainty about the potential that they could achieve with their life because it's very kind of um, uncertain. It's very sort of muddy at the moment. And I think that um, people might might feel a little bit of um, anxiety or, or disappointment about the potential, even though they're, relatively speaking, doing really well. Um, it, and it's that lack of sort of clarity and certainly – I think, you know, in my 20s, I, I absolutely would have paid for this sort of service for somebody to just kind of hold my hand and walk me through investing. And I, I didn't have to make some stupid mistakes and spend hours reading up on stuff like somebody could just do this for me. I mean, I, to my understanding, they've got a partnership with BlackRock and I don't know to what extent um, they're taking a, a management fee, you know, to, to manage that portfolio um, on top of the subscription. I don't know if that comes out of your gains or, or how the commercial model works, but However expensive it is, I think clarity and more certainty that you're doing the, quote, right thing is worth it. Mm. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, uh, on that tie-in with BlackRock? You know, maybe this is the equivalent of Go Henry, right? Yeah. It's like it's not about it's not about this product. It's about the products that you graduate onto. And you know, if uh, if this goes well, actually, you know, is this a good on-ramp for somebody like BlackRock to you know weed out the uh, 
I'm going to come up with a really derogatory term <laughs> there for, for like people who have money and people who don't have money. More negative about the people who have money. So I'm just going to leave it at that stage. Fill in your own blank here, people. Um, we probably should move on, though, because I think we could kind of talk about this one for forever. In consensus, it feels like interesting idea. Let's see how much they acquire the uh, acquired customers in this space. And Mel loves a bit of paper, which is which is good. Uh, all right, moving on then. Uh, from one business model that might be good, but we don't know, to one business model that's kicking ass all over the globe right now, buy now, pay later. So ComBank steps into the buy now, pay later fray. Commonwealth Bank of Australia has waded into the competitive buy now, pay later market competing with Australia's own Afterpay and Klarna, in which is also invested $350 million as well. Set for rollout uh, to its own customer base of more than 4 million consumers in mid-2021, Combank's product will undercut Afterpay by not charging merchants more than their current card transaction fees to accept installment payments. Available for all transactions between $100 and $1,000, payments are split into four installments payable each fortnight. Customers who have uh, been seen to be struggling with repayments from buy now, pay later players will also be blocked from using the service. I mean, this is really interesting, isn't it? Is this the, um, I mean, is this your dad at the disco a little bit? Do you know what I mean? Like, actually, is this buy now, pay later has kind of almost established the brand, you know, Klarna, Klarna it, you know, in the same way as like Venmo is becoming a thing. Like, is this big banks trying to get into like the latest, greatest way of, you know, calling lending something else, or uh, what? What do you think, Miguel? I'll come to you on this one first. Do you think um, is this like direction of travel anywhere that there is a good revenue model? A big bank's likely to end up playing there. Yeah, I mean, listen, the dad has twenty extra years of dancing experience, so that that could help, right? Uh, it reminds me, I just got an email a couple of days ago from J.P. Morgan. You know, they they identify one of my purchases, uh, you know, a relatively big ticket item from my history, and they offer me to split it in, in multiple payments. So it's not just Commonwealth Bank of Australia, but uh, other banks are, are also starting to do it. And to me, it's just credit, right? And and this is their bread and butter. So it's, it's a new way of, of looking at credit. It's a little bit innovative, and it's also given customers the ability to delay the payments. Plus, if Commonwealth is doing it with their existing client base, means they have visibility into the history of this client. If they're using it well, hopefully they are, right? If they're maybe applying some cash flow underwriting to it, then they can actually make good decisions, maybe even better than someone like Klarna because they have more, more visibility into into the history of the client. So, you know, I, I think it makes sense. I, I think it makes sense for, for banks to jump into it. Obviously, this is a profitable uh, service, right? So why wouldn't yeah. they? I mean, it's, it's difficult, isn't it? I mean, debt makes the world go round, right? It, in fact, it literally makes, you know, the whole of the, the money systems really sort of work is people buying things that they can't afford yet and potentially can't afford. <laughs> uh, and actually, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, different research that's been done around buy now, pay later in terms of what it does for, you know, basket sizes of spend and all sorts of stuff. So but it, it, it is interesting because I, I, I don't uh, I don't worry about the business model so much on this one. I worry about whether banks actually have the type of relationship to talk to people about this type of stuff, because um, if my bank got in touch with me to tell me this. 
they don't have any relationship with me in the, you know, my main high street bank. So actually the only time they really get in touch with me is to sell me something. So I don't know what the, the your relationship, Miguel, is with uh, JP Morgan Chase, but actually if those guys are, uh, if, if the only times they talk to you is to sell you something, I get sort of suspicious of that. Do you know what I mean? So, uh, um, and that <laughs> yeah. those recommendations start having a bit less meaning, don't they? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's true. And this is a credit card relationship. But if what they're selling is valuable, you know, I was tempted. I didn't go for it, uh, but I was tempted. I, I was tempted. So, you know, I don't mind if, if they're only selling, but it's it's actually something valuable. Yeah. Oscar, uh, have you been uh, hammering that Klarna button like lately, like buying all the stuff? I haven't, but I don't think I'm quite the demographic. I was struck by uh, here in the UK, the Financial Conduct Authority did a piece of work uh, on them recently on the, the market. And I think they found something like 75% of the market is female. So, uh, you know, I, I'm in the minority if I, I was using it. But I mean, what struck me about um, this this deal, I mean, when you were talking about the dad at the disco, it reminded me of uh, Barclays Ping It. Recently, there was that story about Ping It being uh, sort of wound down, which obviously bringing up Venmo there, that was very much their attempt to be the sort of, you know, hip young geek gunslinger coming to join the party, but it kind of fell fell by the wayside. And there is certainly the potential for that to happen again here. You know, the it's, it's one thing to want to uh, get a piece of this new market. It's another thing to execute well on it. And um, uh, the, 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 the likes of Klarna, Afterpay, all, all these sort of established businesses who haven't been around that long, but they have got a head start. And perhaps more than anything, they've got a cultural head start. They know, they have this sort of inbuilt sense of you've got to move fast, adjust, really, really keep an eye on the market. Um, and I get the sense that a lot of the more traditional banks are a bit more risk averse. And so uh, that could lead to poorer outcomes um, when they're sort of innovating. Either the market leaves them behind or they just don't get it right. So I suppose that would be the risk here. Um, but from a customer perspective, as you were pointing out in terms of the whole view of the client, this does have the potential to be better for them in terms of affordability. That was definitely one of the issues raised here in the UK was the fact that uh, a lot of the players don't have visibility of each other. So you might take out an afterpay loan over here, a Klarna pay over there, um, and end up with all this sort of hidden debt, as it were. So having a whole view of the customer, probably a good thing. Yeah, it's difficult, isn't it? At that point where then defaults happen, then suddenly the the web of uh, problems mm. sort of comes about, doesn't it? And I think there'll be more and more in the UK market as this is uh, the FCA take more and more of a, a tighter view because uh, you know the the it's been passed now. It's going to be regulated in a real way. So let's see where that gets to. Mel, Mel have you got any uh, views on this one? I, I like uh, you know, Oscar's just basically said it's seventy five percent female. So have you been using Klarna a lot? Do you know, I've never actually used any buy now, pay later product ever. Really? Yeah. Am I the only person who tried to use Klarna? Like, how is that, how is that <laughs> thing? Go on, you go on. So um, to offer a contrarian view, I think this is quite a clever strategy, actually, because um, Commonwealth Bank of uh, Australia has quite a strong network of uh, merchants, uh, m- merchant customers. And um, I think that they're alleviating some of the financial pressure um, in, the, in the way that they've structured this. So they're being very generous on the merchant side. And of course, the merchant has to um, adopt whatever buy now, pay later 
uh, method that you know customers can can use. So this could end up being um, the preferred choice um, for merchants to you know embed this in the um, in in the transaction process. And I also think that it could be a way of uh, encouraging. Uh, small businesses within Australia, um, to which the zeitgeist actually is quite conservative. It aligns very closely with um, the more traditional banking, um, you know, more traditional bank providers. Um, so actually, they they could increase their um, deposits and uh, flows massively by just winning winning the trust and preference. Um, and I imagine there'll be some degree of, uh, I guess, escalating benefits if they continue along that path for customers that also adopt this uh, on the merchant side. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating to see whether more big banks take that approach as well, right? Uh, are we going to start seeing that happen on all of these other shores? Because the I guess the dynamic in each of those markets, as you say, is sort of different, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. All right. Uh, well, let's see what happens in this one then. Um, I did try Klarna and I got declined. Did like, you? Uh, the, How on yeah. earth did you get declined? I don't know, but you know I took it up <laughs> with them. So, uh, but it was, uh, I was trying to get an Xbox, uh, one of the new Xboxes that came out. The only way I could actually get one was through game buying it on Klarna. And then I got declined. They, they told me it was the game's website rather than my shoddy credit history. But uh, but you know what? It probably just could be that. Uh, all right. Well, from everybody adding money to their valuation to somebody who's took a little bit off it. And by a little bit off it, I mean $62 billion. Uh, Tencent has lost $62 billion off its valuation. Um, so Tencent Holdings Limited shares fell for a second day, fueling a $62 billion wipeout that one brokerage says has almost obliterated most of the value in its online finance business. The stock fell more than 4% in Hong Kong on Monday, following a 4.4% drop on Friday. China's top financial regulators see Tencent as their next target, following a bit of a clampdown on Ant Financial Group's uh, Jack Ma's business. Uh, like Ant, Tencent will probably be required to establish a financial holding company to include its banking, insurance and payment services within. Um, all else equal, we think it could be argued that Tencent's fintech business is now valued at almost zero, which I think is probably a bit of an overreaction, uh, said one person. Um, what do you think? I mean, that is a huge, huge loss, isn't it? But I mean, it is a huge, huge business as well. I, I, if, if that is what 4.4% does, then the valuation of that entirety of that group is massive. So, uh, you know, is this something to, do we, do we panic or is this uh, something that actually Mel feels like one that, do you know what, 4.4% in the grand scheme of things, likelihood is that market will recover in the same way as actually we've seen Ant's uh, recovery as well following uh, earlier scrutiny and Jack Mal going disappearing for a little bit, didn't he? So uh, now he's back, it all seems to be good again. Yeah, exactly. So uh, actually, Jack Ma was ordered to hand over customer data to the um, PBOC earlier this month, which um, personally, I, f I just find so like worrying. And uh, if I was... I mean, a it makes it sound like he's just carrying it around on a thumb drive. Like, I'm sure... <laughs> I'm sure he doesn't just have to, he's like, you know, patting himself down trying to find yeah. the hard drive. But um. Exactly. I don't think it bodes well for, for customers of Ants and Tencent generally. And I think the falling stock is just because, you know, regulators are, are wading in and people are 
are worried about it. And um, I think it will be international investors that are a bit shaky. I don't know um, the sentiment of uh, Chinese investors to to this sort of thing, but I I, I mean, I, I would be quite worried about it, yeah. Mm. What do you think, Miguel? Listen, I, I used to live in China uh, many years ago. And You've lived everywhere. I, like, you lived in Ireland, <laughs> lived in China. There's a lot more. Do, they, do you just get, you get moved on every so often. This is what I, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm hearing. Yeah, I, I used to. I used to. Yeah, yeah. No, I've, I've, been, uh, I've been put, at least in the East Coast, for a while now. But yeah, I did. I did kind of grow up all over the place. But listen, in, in China, it's very clear, right? It's the PBOC. And you you got you to gotta stay within... Uh, the the lines right and it, when whenever it seems that that's not going to be the case or whenever it seems like oh it might be different here then you get reminded that no it, you know, you you really have to abide and it doesn't matter how big successful you are so this is just an, yet another reminder so it's not that surprising and by the way even before Jack Ma's comments. Um, you know, when was that? Late, late last year, just around the, the almost IPO um, of of Ant Financial. Well, even before that, the the Chinese uh, government was already taking steps to to curve regulation and and to limit the reach of of this large fintech. So that has just accelerated a little bit, right? Or maybe a lot. But this was already uh, in in process. Hmm. It's interesting. I mean, have they got? Uh, is it them getting a bit too big for the boots? Do you think, Oscar, and therefore the Chinese government sort of putting them in check here a little bit, or uh, is this the equivalent of me sending my kids to their bedrooms for a bit to think about what they've done? Uh, is essentially what I'm trying to say to you. Or do you think this is more of a a trended retrenching back to China rather than? the openness of you know and financial was the you know kings of the high seas they were the everybody what everybody was looking up to in terms of the model but it doesn't seem that way so much at the moment i think it's definitely a retrenchment i mean the geopolitical context is everybody's talking about you know we're moving from what was a bit more of a multipolar world to a bipolar world now it's the us versus china the sort of new cold war and so, you know, Beijing wants to make sure they have absolute control over all of the important levers within their state. If, you know, these these companies start get getting very big and potentially become rival uh, sources of power or, you know, become too intertwined to international capital markets or have rival sort of uh, power bases overseas, that becomes much more complicated for them. They'd rather sort of have a centralised system where they can say, okay, we want to, uh, you know, as you were saying, we, we want to tap Jack Maher on the shoulder and ask for all the data he's got in his back pocket on his thumb drive. You know, it's, it's much easier to have everything regimented and under so their sort of control. Um, and just on, I mean, just on the, the stock price fall as well, in terms of whether you should be, whether people should worry about that. I mean, as I understand it, there's a bit of a mechanical aspect to it in that if the Tencent is being pressured to spin off these holdings, it's, sort of naturally going to re-rate to a certain extent because investors are going to say, okay, well, they're going to lose those earnings moving forward if that's going to become a separate company. Um, so I wouldn't say it's necessarily a sense of, oh, this business is going to explode. We're going to, you know, die, you know, sell it today. It's more just a sense of, okay, well, if that's the what's going to happen, you know, you need to reflect that in the earnings and th- therefore the share price. Mm, interesting. Mel? 
Yeah, I think um, it's also interesting that it, I think the order came from the um, you know, chi- China's president um, to order a crackdown on um, on monopoly. So it seems to be coming right from the top. And actually, it, it wasn't just um, Tencent, uh, 12 companies, um, I think uh, 10 deals have been considered to be violating the anti-monopoly rules. So I suppose a more generous outlook could be to say that um, they're trying to promote, um, you know, competition, allow the rest of the market to catch up. But um, yeah, I, I think there are so many ecosystems actually, um, and so many small businesses and medium-sized businesses that work within the marketplaces of these monopolies. So that the market is fair to a degree, and that these institutions are providing the infrastructure for innovation, rapid innovation as well. So I do wonder if over-regulation will actually impede growth um, going forward. Yeah, I mean, that'll definitely be the the argument that the business has pushed back on that stuff, isn't it? It's like, hey, we've created competition. But it does show, actually, if the regulator isn't part of the process and part of the innovation, then do they then have to, does the market, you know, from a regulatory perspective, have to correct every so often, you know? Uh, I can't imagine the FCA making similar changes, given that they've been all involved all the way through. I do like to, to think of the uh, the regulators having more of a kind of a, uh, like a, a, a TV detective style role in the industry, though. I feel like that would be fun, you know, lots of banging <laughs> on desks and kicking in doors. Like it just, uh, I, and, I, and I think if they took that approach, I think there'd be a lot more applied for uh, for roles at the FCA. Like, I feel like, you know, that sort of Cagney and Lacey vibe, I think it would be a lot more of an interesting thing. I'm sure somebody from the FCA is listening and will get in touch on that one. But uh, uh, I imagine they've had a brainstorm about it, decided it was a bad idea and moved on. And that's exactly what we're going to do. All right. So there was a bunch of stories that we didn't have time to cover today, though. So, uh, Mel, we're going to have a bit of a whistle-stop tour through this. Do you want to pick up the first one? Yes, thank you. So the first one is a Finextra story. Um, First Digital goes live as Israel's first bank since 1978. First Digital, the first bank um, in Israel since 1978, started operations on Sunday on a trial basis. The bank, which um, Israel's banking regulator approved last year, has 140 staff and has begun opening current accounts, providing credit and securities management services, Uh, for a closed group of customers. The first digital has been established with $60 million in funding raised by um, founders Amon, um, Sashua, co-founder of Intel's um, autonomous car business, um, Mobileye. In the third quarter, the bank will offer services to 1,000 additional customers before opening to the general public towards the end of 2021. Um, I think this is quite cool. And um, I, I think their, um, their co-founder and his experience is actually really interesting as well. So they, they're going to be using a lot of artificial intelligence and other technologies to create a um, personal ambiance without having to have actual human contact and they're dispersing with um, or dispensing with the neighborhood branches that traditional banks uh, have in Israel. Um, And they're saying that, uh, in their opinion, banking is one of the few industries that hasn't undergone a revolution. We would obviously disagree with that, but perhaps in Israel that's correct. And they're going to be ordering... um, uh, offering more mortgages as well to uh, customers at the end of the, the year as well. Back over to you, David. 
I'm definitely going to go and look up what a digital personal ambiance is because like, <laughs> I want to know what that is in like I feel like that's something you tell investors to get investment but like I'm gonna uh, go and look it up and, and come back on that one for sure all right next up we have UK fintech sum up raises are 750 million dollars so UK fintech startup sum up has raised 750 million dollars from several investors including Goldman Sachs and Bain Capital Credit is that Bain as in Bain consultancy or is that a different type of Bain I think it's Bain. yeah I think it is Bain consultant I don't know I, I assume so Wow. All right. I'm going to go look that up as well. I've got loads of homework this week. It's going to be terrible. All right. Uh, SumUp is a fintech company that allows businesses to receive payments both in store and online via its card terminal and competes with players like iZettle, amongst a bunch of others in this space. It is also diversified into building online shops and taking online payments. Uh, they're going to be using the money to expand out into a further 33 markets. Uh, it was launched most recently in Chile, Colombia, and Romania, and now is going to be expanding even further into Asia. Uh, payments, them gold in them hills, right? You know, like actually, as we were talking about earlier on with uh, with Stripe, then, uh, you know, using and increasing the sophistication around a product that people use every day it's going to be really, really beneficial to you. So, uh, I mean, great to see a UK fintech scene hit these types of valuations as well. It's always been the thing. It's like, yeah, but have you got like the really big ones? And like now we do, which is awesome. Over to you, Mel. Thanks. So the next story is from TechCrunch um, and it's about Secure, spelt S-O-C-U-R-E. Secure, which uses AI and machine learning to verify identities, has raised $100 million in a Series D uh, giving it a $1.3 billion valuation. Secure's predictive analytics platform applies artificial intelligence, machine learning techniques with data intelligence from email, phone, address, etc., um, to verify people who are who they say they are when they're applying for various different accounts. And uh, today, Secure has more than 350 customers, including three of the top banks, uh, six uh, top 10 card issuers, and over 75 fintechs, such as Varo Money, Public Chime, and Stash. Looking ahead, the company plans to use its new capital to also enhance product offering as it continues to develop patents. More uh, broadly, the U.S. digital identity market is projected to increase to over $30 billion by 2023 from just under $15 billion in 2019, according to One World uh, Identity. So it's obvious here that uh, identity verification is hotter than it's ever been. Um, and I guess that... Um, you know, it's got something to do with the pandemic and, you know, shutdowns of uh, physical stores, etc. is increased demand um, for trusted um, digital identity ver verification. Um, and they're expanding into lots of different verticals as well. So they've been primarily focused on financial services, but um, they're, they're also going to be going into like online gaming, healthcare, telco, e-commerce. Um, so, yeah, loads of opportunity. Mm, yeah, digital identity is is a huge one, isn't it? I mean, fraud ain't getting any better. And as in increasingly as everything is digital, then digital identity is just like a, a real cornerstone of everything, isn't it? So, uh, all right. Uh, and finally, story of the week. Uh, Elon Musk is now identifying as techno king of Tesla. <laughs> techno king of Tesla. This is fun. And it gets it gets even weirder. So uh, Zach uh, Kiricorn has changed his title to Master of Coin at Tesla as well. Uh, previously, they were both Chief Executive Officer, 
and CFO. Do you know what? I, uh, Mel, this will mean something to you, but I got, into, uh, I got in touch with the, the CFO at 11FS, Joe, and was like, what would you think about changing your, uh, <laughs> your title to uh, Mistress of Coin? Uh, at which point she asked me if I had any serious questions because she's got a lot to do. And uh, I took that as a no, really. But I mean, like, Mel, if I changed my title to Techno King of, of 11FS, you think I was mental, surely? I don't know. I kind of like it. Um, I think that normal titles can be a bit stuffy and they just, I don't know if they're appropriate these days. Like, you are the CEO, but you're also, you do other stuff as well rather than just CEOing. So I'm not sure if... I do. I yeah, do a lot of things. I know. I do the king of yeah. techno. So I think you, you know... You could have Wait, a more... the king no the king of techno is definitely a different thing. That's like a that's like a music yeah. genre if uh, not ju- not just a technical <laughs> t- but anyway, no, uh, sorry to interrupt you Mark. It it reminds me of Techno Viking. I don't know if I remember that video and David you're you're not too far from that. <laughs> I'll work on the beard. Uh, but like but but what do you think in that Mel then like so I mean are does this matter? Is this, is this Elon Musk just dicking around because he can because he's like really, really rich? Like you don't get Patrick Collinson doing this, do you? Like Patrick Collinson, <clears throat> no. nice Irish boy, sticks to just being called the CEO, doesn't he? Like he doesn't call himself the techno king of Stripe. And, you know, I want to know if he gets a crown with this king. Title. I hope so. I mean, I, I think he can afford to build his own crown or make, make his own crown, I guess, out of some kind of... Martian-based materials or something that would be really exciting if he could do that. That would be exciting. I'd be in for that. But uh, do you do you think though that so to your point? Oh man, I'm going to make this serious now, and I just wanted to have fun with it. To no, start it's with. fine. But, it's fine. So do you, on your on your on your point around like job titles, like are they meaningless really in today's world? Like actually, you know, in a in organisations where you're you know disseminating responsibility for decision making you know power to the edges and and all those things like does the world of you know i'm the ceo so i make the decision not my voice and i don't say that mel don't tell anybody (laughs) um then you know does that does job titles just become meaningless i think it depends on the culture of the organization and also um to what degree you're immune from the um prejudice of other organizations like i don't think that elon cares really what anyone think so he can go ahead and call himself tech techno king of tesla and he's sort of immune to criticism really because he's doing so well across um across the board but i suppose if you're a medium-sized organization you've got to liaise with very serious banks or very serious sort of other companies then having silly job titles can be a bit douchey i mean i have seen some startups with ridiculous titles and um i don't know there is an element of cringe but also i kind of get their point i can kind of see it i think if we had you know more powerful job titles that would be quite interesting so i would like to be called second sea lord that would be like my ultimate <laughs> ultimate job title not the first sea lord no because you have to have some you know you have to have a benchmark so that people know you're good do you know what i mean okay so like the <laughs> Well, I was going to, I was going to say, so, so the implication there is like, so that you're not the first sea lord, you're the second sea lord. Yeah. I, like, I, this feels almost Game of Thrones. Like, uh, <laughs> did you kill the first sea lord to become the second sea lord? Well, you know, I, I, I'm, I mean, the, the first sea lord could still be alive. It's just that I think in order to engender a bit of positive competition, it would be good to be the second sea lord. Like. You know, die. You gotta be careful, Mel, because you know I can make this happen. So, so like, yeah, <laughs> please no, no. do. That would be amazing. 
I'm straight on bamboo HR because, like, I, I know I can do that. So, uh, <laughs> uh, Oscar, what do, what do you think? Like, as uh, do, do titles really carry meaning in this world? I'm going to give you a serious point to make a point on, but I think I mean I think when you're at the top of the organisation, you, yeah, you can do what you want. But I mean, I'm just thinking it'd be hilarious if you know somebody from accounts in the regional office, the Reading office of HSBC, decided to turn change their name to you know executive master of the coin or something then you know then things get really interesting then you've got to sort of uh, see if you can put the cat amongst the pigeons but i mean my impression of uh, tesla is it's just like having two sniggering sort of frat boys at the top of the company running around like mussing each other's hairs up and being like what should we do <laughs> now oh let's be the techno king and everyone else is just sort of being like okay we're just you know going to keep building these cars over here and please don't set anything on fire or you know just if that's what makes you happy do it fine <laughs> <laughs> it, it does feel slightly like you know, sleep deprivation's got the best of him. You know, I mean, like we all do weird things when we have that first kid, and then you suddenly you've got, you know, you're you're up at four o'clock rocking him to bed, and then suddenly you've got this weird idea. You know, like, uh, but he doesn't seem to have anybody to stop him, which is almost the interesting thing. Miguel, what do you think? He might as well call him global, <laughs> call himself global master of memes, right? Uh, I, I think one of the most amusing parts of this is that if he gets sued. You know, the legal documents will have to address him as techno king of Tesla. <laughs> that is true. It's worth it's worth that just for the uh, the court reconstruction of uh, of that, yes. doesn't it? But uh, all right. Well, I'm off to change Mel's top job title in uh, in the 11FS HR system right now because uh, I just think it'd be good fun. So uh, yeah. Uh, all right. On that note, we better wrap up this show. Uh, thank you so much to all of our guests. Where can people find out a little bit more about you, Miguel? Well, you can find me on Twitter and LinkedIn and most of social media. And I just want to remind everyone that, you know, you're welcome to tune in to the Wharton Fintech podcast. We publish four times a week, Mondays, Wednesdays, Fridays, and Sundays. And we also have our upcoming conference, the Wharton Fintech conference starting April 22nd. It's open to all. Obviously, the, the format is digital, but we do have all the biggest speakers and all your favorite fintech brands, Stripe included, joining us. And there will even be a pitch competition for early fintech entrepreneurs. Very, very good. Oscar, where can people learn a bit more about you? I'm on Twitter and also LinkedIn, and you can read all of my work on Yahoo Finance UK. Very good. And the second lord of fintech at 11FS, uh, Mel. <laughs> Oh, damn. Yeah, the Sea Lord. Uh, man, I've got to write that down to get it right on the system. Uh, Mel, where can people learn more from you? Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. I haven't updated my official title yet to Second Sea Lord. Um, pending changes, it changes please do in it. <laughs> um, Yeah, please do that. Cool. And then you can also find out more about us at 11fs.com as well. Very good. As for me, you can find me over on LinkedIn. I'm just the CEO. Uh, uh, and you can just search David Brewer and I'm always over there. Uh, thank you very much for listening. If you have liked what you've heard, then subscribe to this podcast. Uh, don't forget to leave us a review. Uh, if you don't like what you've heard, go listen to Miguel's podcast. It's really good. Uh, as always, if you want to join the conversation, find us over on social media. Just search for 11FS or Fintech Insider. Or if you want to complain or have a suggestion, then also get in touch with Miguel because that'd be funny. Uh, thank you very much, everybody. Goodbye.